Love comes in many forms, but what exactly is it and why is it so powerful? I'm Chris Williams, and today on Fordham Conversations, we'll be looking at love from scientific, literary, and philosophical perspectives in order to better understand the nature of love and how it operates. First, I spoke with Dr. Jay Wade from Fordham's psychology department. We talked about how people fall in love and the different ways to show love. First of all, there's all different kinds of love, and in terms of where it comes from, it depends on what perspective you take. As a psychologist, you know, we kind of look at it from a psychological perspective. In general, we could say that in terms of romantic relationships, there's two kinds of love, passionate and companionate love. Passion is usually like the initial stages of love or when they'd say, I'm falling in love, and the person has these intense emotions, sexual feelings, they're completely absorbed in the person, there's the agony and the ecstasy. And the other type of love would be called companionate, where there's a tolerant affection, there's warmth and trusting for the person, and the person's life is like deeply intertwined with one's own. And this continues to grow in a relationship. But love involves both passion, intimacy, and commitment. Intimacy is when a person opens up to another person. They self-disclose. It builds trust. And there are degrees of intimacy, but it's a development of closeness through sharing of the self. And, you know, there could be sexual intimacy without love because you could share yourself sexually, but that's not love. I think, you know, there's there's also the issue of, like, attraction, which may or may not be a part of love. I mean, usually the person that you love you're attracted to in some way or another. Attraction meaning you have positive feelings toward another. And Freud said, you know, Sigmund Freud said, all attraction is sexual. It could be learned. You know, you could learn in terms of basic learning principles of reinforcement. Something becomes attractive because it's rewarding to you. That person is rewarding to you. You can begin to love someone because they treat you lovingly. But um, physical appearance has a lot to do with attraction to others. Those people make judgments about people based on on uh, the way they look. Also, similarity causes attraction and liking. Um, the whole idea of opposites attract, that's true. You're attracted to people who are opposite than you. That works for friendship, but it doesn't typically work for like love and lasting relationships. There's also some evidence that there may be hormones involved with regard to attraction and love. I mean, I don't really like put as much emphasis on that, but there has been some research that kind of shows that like hormones associated with the menstrual cycle appear to drive sexual attraction. And there's been some um, studies of couples and whatnot, and they've looked at, for example, um, photos and asked people to uh, complete questionnaires and, and, and what... Um, features they thought about that um, person. And one example is women paired with feminine-faced men were more attracted to men other than their partners relative their, 
to their partners when ovulating. In other words, what does this mean? That while the woman was ovulating, they were attracted to men other than their partners if their partners were feminine-faced. In other words, they were attracted to the manly men. And there's some other research that has been shown in terms of fertile women being more interested in short-term relationships with men who come across as confident or even cocky on a videotape. So this is like some beginning research in terms of hormones and desire. I don't know if it necessarily relates to love so much as feelings of attraction, which are related to or may be the beginning of something that develops into love. So is it possible to fall in love with someone who you don't have an initial automatic first reaction or attraction to? Yes, because of similarity and being with someone, self-disclosing with someone. Um, I always say that if it doesn't always work, so that's not 100%. But I say if you want somebody to love you, then you love them. It's reciprocated. The person feels it, and it engenders a feeling of love towards you. So, you know, it's simple. If you want somebody to love you, love them. So what are some of the effects that love can have on a person? Like th- their attitude, their disposition, their personality, can it change it? Well, everybody believes that, and uh, people often feel when they have a positive relationship with someone, they're connected and they're uh, in that loving relationship that it makes them a better person. Dr. Laura Schlesinger, who I'm no big fan of whatsoever, said love is a behavior, you know, and that is a concept that I agree with. It's not just how you feel. It's how you treat someone. Love is something that you do. It's not something just you feel. You can feel whatever. It means absolutely nothing. Love is the way you treat a person and what you do. If you treat a person lovingly, that's love. If you treat a person horribly and you say you love them, that's not love. So, you know, I think it's just just a matter of, like, yes, it makes you feel better being loved because the person is treating you in a loving way. But it doesn't do anything for you if somebody says they love you but treat you like crap. Or they're over-possessive or they're jealous all the time or they're extremely dependent or they're very demanding and yet they so-called love you. So can you talk a little bit about the difference between how men and women each show love? Well, men tend to go with the whole chivalrous masculinity thing, damsel in distress, protector. Uh, but what we do know also is that men are more romantic than women are. I know that comes as a surprise to everybody I tell that to, but it is an actual research finding that men believe uh, in lasting love, love at first sight, um, love will make things, the world better. Their men are very romantic. Women tend to be a little bit more practical with regard to love. Um, and women tend to be nurturers and caretakers uh, when they're in love. They also um, oftentimes will find a man that they like and say, you know, or fall in love with and say he has great potential. 
I can make him into the man I want. And men are more likely to see a woman, like her, fall in love with her, and say, this is the woman I want for the rest of my life, and I don't want her to change. I want her to always be just like she is. And men also, you know, fall in love uh, at just as much as women do, but men are actually more likely to say it. They're, they're more quickly to say it than women are. And that is, there's reasons for that. Part of it is that men think that if they say it, that they'll be able to have sex. That if, you know, and women, on the other hand, feel like if I say it, then it, the guy will think I want to have sex or that, you know, I'm pushing myself on him. I'm letting him know too much. I'm giving of myself too much before, you know, I should be. There's many differences. with. Well, men and women are more alike than they're different. Let me say that first. But there are certain little differences that exist with regard to how they f feel about love, show about love, are how they act out love in relationships. And men actually tend to want to protect and help and guide and advise and they show love through sex. Um, they're not necessarily very verbally expressive of love but they demonstrate it um, through their actions. Whereas women are much more verbal and expressive, like to say I love you, they're they tend to be also maybe a little bit more demonstrative. What are some of the ways that you can show that you love a person that would really make them respond? Well, be loyal, be a listener, be compassionate, be empathic, um, express positive, warm feelings about the person, compliment the person, but don't stalk them. <laughs> Just don't stalk them. Don't be on them all the time. Don't be pushy. Just be there for them. Let them know that you're always there, that you won't give up, that you, you're dependable. There's so many romantic movies that have shown this. I mean, and it's actually, it does work. If you're persistent and you do it without being obtrusive and be, without being a stalker, and you're always available and you're always there and you're always understanding and, and without being like, you know, a wimp or, or being stepped on or anything, but just there for that person and emotionally expressive and caring, that's what you do, that person will begin to have warm feelings for you, which could potentially turn into love for you. Okay. So is love meant to last? Is it possible for a relationship to just, for the love to be so strong that it, you know, people will be together till they die? Well, Absolutely. Um, it can last whether they're together till they die, whether they divorce after 25 years, five years, marriage, relationships. That has nothing to do with love. That's separate. Why is that? Well, you know, people get married for a variety of reasons, but love is love. You can love someone that's not good for you. You can love someone that hurts you. You know, you could be with some, you can love someone that's unrequited. But in terms of relationships, I mean, that's when two people love each other and they get together and they decide to build a life together. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. doesn't mean they stop loving each other. That's why I say a relationship could end, but love doesn't necessarily. 
That was Dr. J. Wade talking about the psychological aspect of love. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Chris Williams, and today we're talking about love and its many different forms. I spoke with Professor Philip Sicker from Fordham's English Department to talk about what makes for a good love story. Well, I would say, first of all, you have to have some kind of impediment to the fulfillment of romantic desire. Without that, there's no story at all. And I suppose that the the paradigm of all great Western love narratives is probably Tristan and Isolde, where you have a pair of lovers who, by um, force of destiny, by a magic potion, uh, are awakened into completely uncontrollable desires, but those desires are blocked. She's promised to another man. And what you find then is this growing ardor, this, this intensifying desire as a function of the degree of blockage until finally even the bodies themselves become impediments to what is really the, the ultimate transfiguring desire, interest on an Isolde, which is a union of souls, a melding together in oneness uh, outside the body, outside life, outside all division in some spirit world beyond. Uh, so that, um, that's sort of the template, I, I would suggest, um, for all love narratives are certainly all of the most interesting love narratives in, in, in Western literature that I know of, you know, all the way from um, uh, Shakespeare up through uh, Proust and, and Joyce. Um, but the nature of what the barrier or the division is that intensifies desire um, changes. Um, in, in the 19th century, it was the, the vogue of adultery, the uh, sense of love intensified by its forbiddenness. Certainly, if you think, for example, of Tolstoy's Anna Karenina, uh, we find it. Um, and we also find it, I think, perhaps in a less exalted way in, in a novel like um, Flaubert's Madame Bovary. But more and more, I think, as you move through the 19th century novel and into the 20th, you find um, the love narrative uh, that, that's predicated upon this sense of, uh, of impediments that, that uh, ratchet up longing by making it so difficult or impossible that when you get into the 20th century, certainly in the work, say, of Thomas Mann or of Proust, um, love and desire itself becomes profoundly psychologized. So as you say, the impediment, is that inherently involved in the genre of a love story or romantic tales? Well, I think so, sure, because, I mean... Uh, a love story doesn't go very far if people feel exactly the same way, if there are no obstacles to it. Um, I suppose it would be possible to to write a narrative about a couple who meet, fall in love, get married, reproduce, and live happily ever after, but it would be very short, and I can't imagine that it would be of much interest. Uh, I think that uh, there are all kinds and forms and manifestations of love. But if we're talking about passionate romantic love that generates um, the kind of plot that readers for I don't know, six or seven centuries have found compelling, then yeah, there do have to be some kind of, of, of barriers. You know, since there are impediments, we're usually rooting for the characters to get together. Yeah. Are there any instances where we root against characters falling in love? Yes, that's an interesting question. Well, I suppose if you see a character in a novel for whom the act of falling in love is inherently self-destructive and self-deluding, and they do it again and again, that at a certain point, 
um, if you don't actively root against them, you certainly view their activities with a certain degree of suspicion and and, and perhaps even kind of sarcastic amusement. Uh, Emma Bovary would be a good example. You know, she goes through the same sort of uh, self-stimulated, self-generated uh, longing for figures that she idealizes and then grows disillusioned with again and again and again that we realize that her impulse to love, born out of boredom, is a kind of uh, a disease. It's sort of a, a, an unhealthy psychopathology. And uh, I don't think, therefore, that, that we necessarily feel much urgency or, or sympathetic support for her after a certain point. So a lot of times it seems like authors will use love in order to connect with their audience. Is that, is that the case? Is, is that why authors tell love stories so often? Is it, is it a matter of trying to stimulate some sort of response to the audience? Well, I mean, uh, they know that audiences are going to respond to love stories because almost everyone who reads has, to one degree or another, gone through the experience of, uh, of longing, ardor, disappointment, uh, frustration, self-delusion. I mean, th- these are things that, uh, that in some ways uh, resonate with readers because they're all, you know, very familiar and I would suggest that certainly authors, whether they're drawing on their own experiences or, or simply an understanding of the dynamics of desire, know that this is going to engross readers. And um, what's fascinating sometimes, though, is the way in which a great novelist will create a love story in which he or she knows there will be a strong amount of audience or reader resistance. perfect example of this in one of the great love narratives of the 20th century is Nabokov's Lolita, uh, a, a novel uh, which I think Lionel Trilling, back when it came out in the 1950s, said is, is one of the, uh, the most extraordinary love stories of the 20th century. And it is. Talk about obstacles, not merely the obstacle of uh, nympholepsy, the obstacle of age, the obstacle of being her stepfather, being her stepfather and all the rest. Uh, but there are obstacles that the reader puts up in uh, engaging this narrative. Uh, and there is characteristically, I think, meant to be a tug of war in the reader between a kind of horror and revulsion at what appears to be uh, child molestation on the one hand and the recognition that um, we're not simply being seduced into a kind of interest in this by a, uh, a writer, as Humbert says of himself, with a fancy prose style, but we're being seduced as well by the ardor of his longing, uh, a longing that ultimately uh, takes him beyond nympholepsy. But what's interesting is that uh, in, in some of the, uh, the most fascinating 20th century love stories, um, the novelist both engages us in what he knows will be a kind of sympathy for the individual who desires and at the same time makes it difficult for us and creates a kind of inner conflict in the reader. Love stories have been told forever, it seems like, since, I mean, since people first started writing things down. Yeah. You've had stories of love. So how is it that we're, they still keep us interested? You know, how do we keep it fresh? Is it not just the same story over and over again? Well, you know, that's an interesting question as well, because um, in a certain way, um, if you want to keep love narratives fresh, uh, and if love narratives are, as I've suggested, almost always predicated upon barriers, then you have to... Uh, find new barriers or up the ante of uh, transgression and taboo. So um, 
you know, in the 20th century, you could argue we've pretty much exhausted all possible taboos that can be uh, exploited and overcome in love stories. Um, but I think people still try. So do you think it's possible for someone to fall in love with a fictional character, someone that they read about in books, and to form an actual what they perceive as a connection to that character? <laughs> you, do you know uh, Woody Allen's The Purple Rose of Cairo? The woman falls in love with a, a figure on the screen and tells a friend, she says, I met the perfect man. Unfortunately, he's fictional. Yeah. Uh, do I think it's possible? Well, sure. But I mean, um, in a certain sense, falling in love with a fictional character is merely the most extreme version of what we've all done at one time or another in our lives. And that is fall in love not so much with an actual person as the idea of that person, some imaginative figment that we um, cherish in our imagination. Do you have a personal favorite love story or a personal favorite uh, couple from literature? There are, there are narratives of desire which I think one, one views as appropriate to the time or age in which you read them. You know, when I was, when I was in college, I thought uh, Goethe's The Sorrows of Young Werther captured everything that one could possibly uh, know or feel about romantic desire. But... Uh, in my maturity, I think probably the uh, the love story in literature that most fascinates me and that I that I always find myself drawn to, both with a sense of uh, deep empathy and also with a sense of ironic amusement, is the one in Thomas Mann's The Magic Mountain, in which this um, regular bourgeois guy, Hans Kostorp, um, goes to a tuberculosis sanatorium for a visit, winds up becoming a patient, and falls uncontrollably, madly in love with an uh, exotic Russian woman named Claudia Shoshat. It's the attraction of the Apollonian to the Dionysian, of the bourgeois to the exotic, but it's played out um, with such a wonderful combination of psychological acuity and emotional understanding, and yet at the same time comedy, that it's, it's absolutely irresistible, and um, it has a kind of... Uh, maturity to it without ever losing its sense of, uh, of freshness. That was Professor Philip Sicker talking about love in literature. Next, I spoke to Dr. John Davenport, a philosophy professor at Fordham, to talk about the philosophical ideal of love. Just philosophically speaking, where does love come from? Well, from the heart, of course. That's the classic answer. However, uh, you could say that there are different sources for different kinds of love in, in human psychology, uh, of course, to some extent from uh, evolved drives, uh, but also uh, from the human need for friendship, for affiliation, for a sense of belonging with others, a sense of security, uh, a uh, sense of meaning in life that's partly fulfilled through friendships and through romantic relations. Is there... A philosophical ideal of love, or do certain philosophers approach the subject differently with different views? They definitely do, uh, because some hold the view that all love is basically self-interested. That might sound contradictory, but the idea is that uh, we only want friendships with others or, say, romantic relations uh, because it makes us feel better about ourselves or affirms our own status in our own eyes. Uh, so Sartre famously held famous French existentialist, that romantic love was getting uh, others to worship you, something like this. Uh, 
But that's a minority view. Most philosophers who work on love and theories of emotion today hold that uh, there are emotions, there are forms of affection, even uh, romantic attention that aren't necessarily selfish. They can be about appreciating the beauty, the qualities of another person. Uh, so they, they're to some extent for their own sake, much like aesthetic appreciation of an artwork might be. Is there a particular philosopher whose views of love that you personally feel connected to or that you personally feel is correct? Probably the most famous classic source is Plato's dialogue, The Symposium, where we're, we're offered to think of all forms of love as basically similar to erotic love. We have the analogy of a person being split into, into two halves, the male and female halves, or seeking each other. Uh, actually includes two other pairings that would uh, correspond to uh, you know to homosexual relationships as well uh, and uh, and so those um, different forms of eros become a model for all love on Plato's account. The other person is seeking their ha- their other half, their missing part they're uh, they're seeking what they lack, what they need for completeness. That's one conception of love, uh, Platonic eros, it's called. The other is uh, is really that agopic ideal, again, that uh, there's a devotion to the good of the other person for their own sake. Is it possible for love to cause people to act unethically or against what they would consider their morals? Is it possible for them to go against everything that they held true previously in order to attain love? Unfortunately, it probably is. There are enough examples of it where, uh, out of a romantic relation, uh, people remain loyal to someone who really they ought to have turned into the police or, uh, you know, who they ought to have parted ways with um, because of how badly they treat other third parties. So perhaps there is some truth in the view uh, that to sustain those sort of commitments that we find in a, you know, in a romantic bond where each party senses a real uh, commitment on the part of the other, something that can last through trials and tribulations, through the ups and downs of life, uh, requires some ability to care about goods other than one's own immediate material well-being, pleasures, uh, and material advantage, and so on. So you're not going to immediately stab that person in the back whenever you could get some economic advantage from doing so. Getting back to what you said earlier, you mentioned love comes from, you know, that initial attraction from the brain. It's almost surprising to me. I was thinking that there would be some, like, philosophical ideal that you know, love just exists out there, but you're saying that it comes from us, it comes from science. We might think that uh, romantic relations are based entirely on, uh, you know, sexual desire, uh, erotic attraction of some kind, but that isn't all just a matter of brute biological drive. Uh, The way a person carries themselves, the way they interact with others, uh, the things they say, the interests they have, the concerns they show, uh, their commitment to various values can all be part of what attracts one person to another in a romantic relationship. This is one reason why a lot of philosophers today, like Richard White, who authored a book, Love's Philosophy, a very good contemporary work, uh, argues that romantic relations are really a kind of friendship. Uh, They depend on uh, the same appreciation of another person's character uh, that that really solid friendships do, uh, in a view that goes all the way back to Plato and Aristotle. So correct me if I'm wrong, but would it be safe to say that our modern conception of love has its roots in philosophy or philosophical ideas from centuries ago? 
To some extent, um, yeah, the, the ideals that are um, put forward, expressed in various form of, forms of literature, uh, you know, in religious texts, uh, even in philosophical discourse, do have a large influence on cultural expectations and the kinds of relationships that people uh, expect to have in their lives and that they value. Uh, which isn't to say that that those intellectual influences uh, could ever have developed without some root in you know the realities of human biology and human psychology. They probably reflect to some degree how we're built, uh, but they also shape uh, our values and expectations. We put uh, a very high value on romantic relations in our culture. We're willing to spend a lot on it. Uh, we uh, make great efforts to make that, uh, for many people, uh, right at the center of our lives. Uh, the, the notion that marriage should be based on uh, a romantic feeling, a romantic attraction, a romantic bond between people uh, is one that certainly wasn't always the conception of marriage uh, in, in earlier times and places. Go back to ancient Greece, not at all. Right? Romance, in, that, in our contemporary sense, would have been utterly mysterious and bizarre to, uh, to people back then back in that culture. My thanks to Fordham professors John Davenport and Philip Sicker, and also to Dr. Jay Wade for discussing the nature of love. I'm Chris Williams, and this has been Fordham Conversations on WFUV. Stay tuned for Cityscape with George Bodarchy, which is next on WFUV.